Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow Him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to John chapter 7. We're breaking into John chapter 7 here in our series on the Gospel of John. Um, if you don't have a Bible, um, the usher who kind of guided you in would be happy to, to get one into your hands. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, feel free to keep that Bible, take it with you. We're, we're all good with giving Bibles um, to those who don't have them. That's our gift to you. Please grab one. It'll be on the screen in a little bit here. But as you turn there... Um, I just want to speak specifically, uh, my title's called Unbelieving Family, so I want to speak specifically to those in the room that have family members who don't know Christ. This, this message for you this morning is specifically for you. If you have family in your life who don't know Jesus, this is specifically for you. If, if, if you're in the room and, and all of your family know Jesus, I want you to do a couple things. First, I want you to praise God. That's astounding. That's amazing. That's a work of his grace. If, if all of your family know Jesus. And the second thing I want you to do is just expand that and begin to think about others, other loved ones close to you, coworkers, neighbors, friends, people you love who don't know Jesus. Just have them in the forefront of your mind as we, as we walk through this text this morning and discuss this. Uh, maybe there's another category where um, all of your family are believers and and all of your inner circle are also believers. Well, I'd like you to do something. Listen closely. I'd like you to grab a sharp object. I'd like you to stab the bubble, the, the Christian bubble, rip it open and climb out for you are called to be salt and light of the earth. <laughs> um, those who know me well know that there's a level of sarcasm in my statements and yet there's a truth underlying isn't there somewhere I'll leave that to you to discern <clears throat> but as we move forward we're talking about unbelieving family and the reason we're doing that we're going to look in a moment is because Jesus actually had siblings who didn't believe in him and and so that's staggering to me like they saw Jesus more than anybody and and we discover that they didn't believe that he was who he said he was that's unbelievable. They watched his life. Like, how is that possible, right? Now, you begin to think about it with me just for a, a couple of minutes. Think that through for a little bit. Anybody have a sibling who's like the golden child in their family? Like, what does that do to you as the sibling, as the other siblings? They're like, oh, well, so-and-so, you know, my brother over here can't do anything wrong. I'm always getting in trouble. They're always perfect. It's like, in Jesus' case, that's like spot on right? It's like, yeah, absolutely perfect. It doesn't make the siblings go, you're the best human being that's ever existed. They're like, oh, Jesus. It's always doing exactly the right thing. Meanwhile, over, what does it do? All it identifies is that I'm screwing all kinds of things up. Like that doesn't like just make, oh, love, right? Like, I love you, brother, right? Um, in fact, there's one little glimpse we get of Jesus like growing up life. All of a sudden, we, we, we see this story in the Gospels of Jesus at 12 years old, and he's in the temple. He gets lost. His parents are frustrated. He's not really lost. He just decided to hang out at the temple. They don't know where he is. They've lost him. Typically, the 12-year-old is lost at the mall, right? Jesus is lost in the temple in Jerusalem, and when they finally find him, he's teaching the religious leaders, the smartest of the smart of the day, they're sitting at Jesus' feet and he's teaching them. That was his rebellious face, right? Like that was it. And he's more 
wise than anybody around. His intellect is more brilliant than anybody around. And this is their brother. Um, it's unbelievable. Mary and Joseph, it, you all know the nativity story, right? A star guided people to come celebrate the birth of Jesus, their eldest son, right? And this star shone and people came so they could lavish gifts to this child, right? There, for all the other siblings, there was no, no like wise man from a faraway land bringing frankincense for child number four, right? Like that didn't happen. It only happened in, 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 for Jesus. And so Mary and Joseph knew that there truly was something special about their son, Jesus. He was different and he was treated different. Uh, when I was like young, a bit younger as a young adult, um, just out of, high school, there was this friend group we had and there were these um, three siblings in a, in a family that, that would hang out with us. And it kind of became a joke to our shame that they were so pure. <laughs> like, like one of us would make, you know, kind of an off-colored joke. All of us would laugh except for the three of them. They're like, that's not funny, right? We, we, we'd go to restaurants with them and they'd be like, let's sing to the Lord a song of praise for our food. And we're all like, no, you know, that's... It's a little bit awkward. Like, you know, they were just, everything about them was just so godly, right? And, and to us at that time, it became a bit of a, a running joke that they were that pure. And yet, you know, reflecting back on that, when somebody isn't, you know, you be, the group begin to gossip, but they don't go there with you. Um, it, it, it creates a bit of a tension. If you begin to complain or begin to sin in some way and, and they won't follow you there, it, it actually creates a real tension. Um, and it either, it either kind of warms your heart and you go, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I wanna get back on track with the Lord, right? Or, or you actually start to feel like a bit of a heathen around them, right? And, and, and Jesus was morally pure and righteous and that can come off as weird, right? We would sometimes consider these siblings like they're a bit odd because they won't, you know, they won't participate in some of the things we are. And it can also make you feel completely selfish and sinful. And to be honest, that can be hard to live with. So just imagine with me being the siblings of Jesus and how it was that they didn't believe he was who he said he was, the son of God coming to usher in the kingdom of God. How is it that they didn't believe? Probably because it exposed their sin, made them feel uncomfortable. They thought him to be a weird brother and it just didn't connect. Let's pick up the text and see a bit of context and we'll work our way through. Verse one, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So he's retreated. He's, he's intentionally in this region of Galilee. And now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. Just a little side note. The feast of booze was celebrated in the fall. It was uh, a time of Thanksgiving for the harvest it was a celebration. Um, it was also one of three festivals men were expected to travel to Jerusalem for in the year. Oftentimes the family would go to a couple of those. Entire families would make the trip. But this is one of the three that men were expected to make to Jerusalem. Um, being the Feast of Booths, they actually would build at this, at, during this week, they would build tiny shelters, tiny booths to remember God's faithfulness during their wilderness wanderings. And so this was really the heart of the festival, the, the heart of the feast. And so it was that time of year that they would be heading to Jerusalem. So his brothers said to Jesus, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. 
Let no, let, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. If you're legit, Jesus, if you're legitimate, if you're real, if what you're saying is true, show yourself to the world. And then it tells us in verse five, for not even his brothers believed in him. They saw some pretty miraculous stuff. They saw some of his signs, yes, but they didn't believe that he was the saving one, the rescuer of humanity. They didn't realize that in Jesus, they could receive hope and rescue and put their trust in him. They thought he's doing some pretty flashy stuff. He should go in front of the big crowds. If you are who you say you are, go there. It's, it's a bit in jest for we realize that not even his brothers believed in him. Verse six, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time's always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up not publicly, but in private. So Jesus wasn't about to go up with them with fanfare, wasn't about to go up with them where they, he could be seen. He privately, quietly went for his time had not come. And we'll talk more about that briefly at the end this morning. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. There was a buzz. Well, some said, he is a good man. Others said, no. He is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. There were already plans in motion to find Jesus, seize Jesus, and execute Jesus. Uh, there's two, two kind of places I want us to hang our hats here this morning, primarily in the first, and that is how do we live when our loved ones don't believe in Jesus? How do we go about living? How do we live our lives when our loved ones don't believe in Jesus? And secondly, how do we live when God's timing is different than ours? We'll touch on that briefly at the end. But let's open in prayer. God, um, I really do thank you, Lord, for, um, for the opportunity for us to um, really press into your word this morning on something that is so heavy on many hearts in the room. So God, I pray that you would, um, you would speak to us through your word, you would comfort us in our hearts and you would minister to our hearts where these things truly are difficult. And I pray it in your name, amen. So how do we live when our loved ones don't believe in Jesus? I'm gonna give you five. First, we take heart because Jesus has been there too. Look at verse five. Not even his brothers believed in him. So off the top, I, I simply want to say, this is hard. There is sadness to this. Some of the people we love most don't do with Jesus the same things we do with Jesus, meaning there's nothing more important in the world than how we respond to Jesus one way or the other. It's the most important thing about us is what we do with Jesus. And there are people in our lives who do something very differently with Jesus than we do. And there is real sadness to that. There's real ache to that, right? There are seasons of doubt and questions.
questions and it's a grind. It can be really difficult. And I simply want to say off the top, yes, this is hard, but also our savior too knows what it's like. Right, for some of us here, we'll have this feeling of everywhere I look, it seems like entire families know Jesus. I think I'm the only one who has unbelieving family members and they just don't know what it's like. They don't understand, nobody understands and it's isolating and it feels lonely and right, they just don't get it. It seems like even their pets have come to Christ and right, and yet here I am and like nobody in my family knows Jesus. Like what am I to do with this? The first word I have for you this morning is simply this, take heart. Jesus has been there too. No one on the planet loves you more than Jesus and he's walked that same road. You're not alone. Jesus has been there too. Secondly, how do we live when our loved ones don't believe in Jesus? When our faith causes us to experience rejection from loved ones, we take heart because Jesus has too. Jesus goes on in verse seven, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. See, the world didn't hate Jesus' brothers because they belonged to the world. And when you belong to the world, you're all good with the world. But when you don't belong to Jesus, when you're a part of Christ, right? When you're part of the, the light shining in darkness, the, right? Have you ever flicked a light on and someone's sleeping in the dark? You flick the, the, light, you know, the light switch on in the room, they're like, ah! Right, that, like that's, light exposes darkness and it's just not a comfortable feeling. The world didn't hate Jesus' brothers because they belonged to the world and didn't belong to Jesus. They didn't believe Jesus. Jesus, on the other hand, came as a light and exposed every area of darkness. One of the study Bibles I was reading earlier this week says, nothing is as disruptive as grace. I like that phrase, right? And sometimes that means rejection for the believer with unbelievers because nothing is as, as disruptive as grace. In Mark chapter three, there's another scenario we can read about in light of Jesus healing on the Sabbath and some Pharisees literally planning to destroy him. Crowds following Jesus, Jesus calling his disciples. In other words, just going about his ministry. He's healing, he's teaching, the crowds are following. In the midst of all that, it says in Mark three twenty one, when his family heard it, that really he was ushering in the kingdom, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. As Jesus was going about his ministry, they didn't repent and believe. They thought he was crazy. So look, if you have interactions with people who don't believe, you, you, you live in a, in, a, in a context where you're around individuals who have not come to faith. Look, listen, like, Yes, you will be pegged as weird. You will be pegged as crazy. It just is likely to happen. But you're not alone. Jesus has been there too. As he's healing a man's withered hand, his family going, is going, this guy's insane. He's experiencing rejection from who God sovereignly put him in a household with. It, no closer, right? Sa siblings from his mother Mary, they, they, they reject who he claims to be and think that he's out of his mind. See, our savior is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus is not absent from us when we're experiencing rejection from family members because of our faith. He's been there too, and he sympathizes deeply. 
He also promises that we will receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And he also promises to be our great mediator. When Jesus died on the cross and he rose again, he ascended into the heavens where he sits at the right hand of the Father. So we have this holy God, Father God in the heavens who is holy and righteous and pure. And the problem is, is we're not. But Jesus paid the penalty for our sins so we can yet by his sacrifice, by his cleansing, by his blood, we can come before God the Father and our great mediator, Jesus Christ, will bring our prayers, bring our hurts, bring our pains, bring our sorrows right to the throne room of God. And that leads me to my third point. How do we live when our loved ones don't believe in Jesus? We pray fervently that they would believe and be saved. If you read the Gospels much, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just if you get to know them, you'll see Jesus in this pattern of every once in a while, the writer will slip it in and Jesus removed himself from the crowd or he slipped away from his disciples and spent time um, by himself in solitude, just praying to God the Father. He did this often. In one instance, he actually uh, looked over Jerusalem as he was doing this one time and he wept over that great city. It's nothing about the city, it was the sinners in the city and he wept over their sin. He wept over those he loved. He, but, but Jerusalem represents really historically the center of religion in all of history. And so Jesus is really looking over Jerusalem and, it, and in a more fuller sense, it's representative of sinners all over the world. And he weeps over them with great compassion and he prays over them. We have to believe that on many other instances as Jesus slipped away into solitude and into prayer that he, this nuclear family that he was born into, he also wept over, he also prayed for, he also brought before God his heavenly father and said, would you save, I bring these, I love these, Lord, move. We have to believe he did. In Romans chapter 10, it's really interesting. The apostle Paul is the greatest missionary the world has ever seen. Jesus called him primarily to go and be a missionary to the Gentiles, to non-Jews. And it just caught fire all over the world. Um, great missionary, but he laments and he, he uh, writes about his kinsmen, fellow Jews in Romans 9, 10 specifically, also elsewhere. But, but as he writes there, he, he says in Romans chapter 10 over his brothers, over his kinsmen's brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. His heart's desire and his prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Here's a man who sees lost people who need to see the light of Jesus to be enlivened to who Christ is. And he says that they may be saved. Augustine wrote a book called The Confessions. And it's really a story about his coming to faith. It describes the hound of heaven, who is God, tracking him down and leading Augustine to himself. That's really the way that Augustine um, uh, structures the book is he's running. He's, he, he's, he, right? he's like Jonah, he's taking off. He's like, I can get away, I can get away. He's just running from life, running from faith. He doesn't want it, right? And, and, and he just keeps going, but the hound of heaven, right? Chasing him down, God pursuing him and saving him. Um, his mother, Monica, I mean, I mean this in the best way possible, has sometimes been referred to as the hound of earth. Right, don't take that too far, but, but right, Augustine's mother was considered maybe the hound of earth because she was on the ground 
And her great prayer, her great desire was that her son would come to know Jesus. In fact, um, he would flee her. So he was actually staying at her place in one instance and in the middle of the night, he just took off. He just didn't want to have anything to do with her. He didn't want her to keep praying for him. He didn't want her to keep telling her, uh, him about Jesus. He just, in the middle of the night, took off. And this is before social media, before technology. Somehow his mother, Monica, kept tracking him down. She'd just show up where he had taken off to and be like, Augustine, I love you. I'm praying for you, right? Right, and she just kept doing that. And in fact, it says of Monica, he writes in his confessions, Monica says, there was only one reason and one reason alone why I wish to remain a little longer in this life, her mom says to him. And it was to see you, Augustine, to see you become a Christian. There's only one reason I wanted to stay on this planet and not be with Jesus in heaven. That one reason, Augustine, is so that I could see you become a follower of Jesus. That's it. Gary Hogan, uh, president of Gary Hogan, president of uh, International Justice Mission. Their primary work is to free. Uh, it was really to do with the modern uh, slave trade, usually uh, sex slavery, uh, and they free sex slaves from their modern slavery. It's amazing work. And Gary Hogan, the president of IJM, said, "By inventing the phenomenon of human prayer." God has decided to allow our asking to make a difference in the events of the world. In other words, prayer is a means by which God has ordained to accomplish his purposes. So God is, yes, fully in control. Nothing is outside of his grasp. Nothing exists without his will, without his sovereign control. And yet at the same time, there is this means of the prayers of his people. This is his grace to us that our prayers actually make a difference and achieve his grand purposes. So our prayers aren't some robotic thing or they don't make any difference. Or right, Our joy becomes praying and our praying actually makes a difference and accomplishes God's will. This is a great, great gift. Prayer is a means by which God has ordained to accomplish his purposes. So we should pray fervently that those loved ones of ours would believe and be saved. D.L. Moody, one of the greatest evangelists of the last couple of centuries, said um, when he meets Jesus next, face to face, next to the wonder of seeing my Savior will be, I think, the wonder that I made so little use of the power of prayer. <laughs> D.L. Moody, this great evangelist, says, I think when I see Jesus... I'm gonna be so in awe of Jesus, but following that up will be the wonder that I made so little use of the power of prayer. So here's five quick things, five ways I think that we can pray for our unbelieving loved ones. First, pray that God would draw them to himself. We, 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 this taps uh, kind of into what we were talking about last week. Um, John chapter six, verse 44, and elsewhere, multiple places in John chapter six, Jesus declares, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. There's this initiating, this divine initiation, his initiating work of we are blind, we are in darkness, right? And we cannot change ourselves. We cannot will ourselves on our own, left to our own devices. So pray that God draws them to himself. For Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Secondly, pray that they would seek to know God. Pray that they would seek to know God. 
Jesus declared, those who seek me, find me. And you know what? That might be you this morning. A family member may have dragged you here practically against your will. A friend may have brought you here this morning or there is just this sense that you have that says there's something missing. What's with this Jesus guy? There's something in my life where there's some desperation or there's a void and you, you just, what is this church thing? I don't know. But the fact that you are here is, is really an answer to many prayers, which would be that we pray that God draws people to himself. We also pray that, that those that we love would seek him. For those who seek Jesus, find him. Thirdly, we pray that God would send someone to reach them. Now, that may be you. But I'm also gonna be a little bit realistic here as well. Sometimes family who are really, really close have a lot, a lot, a lot of baggage (laughs) and we mishear each other and it's loaded and it's charged and there's history and it's just does, it just, it just doesn't seem, you can pray, you be faithful your whole life. Yes, be faithful, but you can pray, Lord, would you send someone to reach them? Because your heart is so for someone reaching them. You can pray that. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Third, pray that Satan would be prevented from blinding them from the truth. Pray that Satan would be prevented from blinding them from the truth. This might sound for us who we just trust what we see, trust what we can touch, right? This might just seem so spiritual, But listen, this is what 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says. This is what's truly going on. The God of this world, lowercase g, Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Meaning that Jesus is shining in this world. But Satan has his hands, has the blinders over the eyes of unbelievers. They can't see the light. How can you see something when you're blind? Can you make yourself see, blind man? No. We need intervention. We need help. So it says that the God of this age, the God of of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So we pray that Satan would be prevented from blinding them from the truth. Jesus speaks to the apostle Paul in Acts chapter 26, telling him, sending him to his people and to the Gentiles to what? to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive, the, receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, Jesus says. The blind need to see, and we can pray that Satan would be prevented from blinding them from the truth. Fifthly, pray that they will believe in Jesus and put their trust in him. Jesus said in John chapter five, verse 24, truly I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him, God, who sent me, Jesus, has eternal life. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. So we can pray that they will believe in Jesus and put their trust in him. So there were five subpoints of part three of my five subpoints. 
So let's get back to number four. You tracking? Okay, great. How do we live when our loved ones don't believe in Jesus? Number four, we put the gospel on display through our example. There's an interesting text in 1 Peter chapter 3. It says, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. The context for this is Christian wives with unbelieving husbands. This is a word from the apostle Paul when people were being converted, when the church was beginning and in, um, in the really Christianity was catching like wildfire. And so there's these married couples who are unbelievers and one spouse comes to faith. The apostle Paul addresses this elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, but Peter's addressing it here. So in this instance, there's a woman who has come to faith and her husband has not. And Peter is saying that, that really is, is encouraging this, um, this woman to win his soul for Christ by putting the gospel on display through her respectful, pure example. Now, this, this is very specific into um, a woman coming to faith and trying to lead her husband to faith, but there's, a, there's sort of a, a principle that's more broad, and that principle is that we go about winning souls for Christ by putting the gospel on display through our respectful, pure example. That these words stand in a broader context. That when they see respectful, pure conduct, they may be saved. Nancy Piercy in her book, uh, in her book Total Truth, uh, we have it as a resource that you can make use of. She writes, in the days of the early church, the thing that most impressed their neighbors in the Roman Empire was the community of love they witnessed among believers. Behold how they love one another, they said. In every age, in every age, the most persuasive evidence for the gospel is not words or arguments, but a living demonstration of God's character through Christians' love for one another, expressed in both their words and their actions. The most persuasive evidence for the gospel is not words of arguments, words or arguments, but a living demonstration of God's character through Christians' love for one another, expressed in both their words and their actions. So here's the question for us. Do our lives, do your lives match your theology? Is the way that we live, is the way that you live consistent with your beliefs? And is it compelling to outsiders? We love the Bible here at Central. And I often hear it say, said, praise God that we, we give ourselves to the scriptures and we preach the Bible. Yes. And a follow-up question to that is, look, do we live the Bible? <laughs> Many of us can talk a good game. We can do the theological exercises. We can drop the big words that have rich theological meaning. We can debate on minutia of theology. But the question that all of us have to ask, I have to ask myself, does, does my life match my doctrine? Like, does it? Is this sport to me? Or when I come across a convicting word, do I pray it? Do I desire it? Do I submit under it and, and actually seek life transformation? What we call sanctification, becoming more and more slowly like Jesus and less and less slowly like the world. 
Is the way that we live consistent with our beliefs and is it compelling to outsiders? Because we have a rich opportunity of putting the gospel on display through our example. Fifth, we also, to pair with that, we take opportunities to winsomely communicate the gospel. Notice I didn't say we take opportunities to communicate the gospel. I said we take community, uh, opportunities to winsomely communicate the gospel. Winsome is really just attractive and appealing appearance, language. And I also wrote, we take opportunities. I want to unpack those. See, living upright and compelling lives is important, but does not fully communicate the gospel, as Paul makes clear in Romans 10, 14. How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Actions are important, but we need, we, we need with these lives of these, this gospel example, we also need words to match so they can find out the hope that's in us. I was asked recently about how to share faith with a relative you've known for a long time, right? They've been relatives for a very long time. And, 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 and the rhythm was just never to talk about faith, is to talk about life except for faith, right? They're not believers and he's a believer. And, and so they just have this rhythm and it doesn't include talking about Jesus. And that's just been the way it's been for a long time. So it was a beautiful question because he's saying, how should I do that? Because I should, <laughs> because I want to. I, I love that question. And my response to him was take the opportunities that come along. And I quoted to him 1 Peter chapter 3, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Take the opportunities that come. Sometimes, to be honest, the opportunity is a funeral. Sometimes the opportunity is somebody asking a sort of ethereal kind of question and just letting it hang. Asking big life questions, like what's the point of all this? Like, and this opportunity, the opportunities come and you wanna take those opportunities to share the hope that's in you. That's really testimony. So it's not just being the guy at every meal that says, stop what you're doing, stop eating everyone. Stop eating the turkey. I'd like to stand and give my testimony because you need to hear it. When I was four, I met Jesus when at camp, I, you know, like whatever. Like it's, it's not just, right, just I'm gonna force this message in. You're a sinner, here's the remedy. Like it's, just, it's not just going through that mechanical kind of system. It's, it's take the opportunities that come when, when life presents itself and situations present themselves. Pray for those opportunities and then take them when they come and always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that's in you. There's this winsome language when you're talking about hope rather than an argument, right, that you're trying to win. So if you're trying to win people to Christ by like refuting their arguments in an argumentative way on Facebook, just stop, right? But what we're trying to do in this concept is winsomely, compellingly, a light so brilliant. That's Jesus, a light so brilliant that if you can paint that picture, how could anyone look away? It's that winsomeness, that taking the opportunities for hope that's in you, the story of God changing your life. Jude 22, 23 picks up on this. Have mercy on those who doubt. I love that. Don't trample the doubters. Your faith doesn't seem strong enough. And like, right, just tell them how it is. Have mercy on the doubters, right? There's just a, a gentleness to that. There's a winsomeness to that. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. 
save them by, by living by gospel example, by telling them the good news of the gospel. And to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Just merciful, merciful, compelling love. Look, I've listed the five. Um, and at this point, a few of you will say, yeah, but my, my situation seems particularly hopeless. You don't know my story. You don't know the people in my life. And my, 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 my word to you this morning, as true as that is, is don't despair. Please don't despair. A minister named William Jay once called on John Newton, the former slave trader who was strikingly converted when a storm at sea was, uh, sea, uh, sorry, was strikingly converted well in a storm at sea on his way to England. That's John Newton's story. They were talking about a mutual acquaintance who had recently been converted and Jay observed that the man had once attended on his preaching but that he was an awful character. He said, he may be converted, though I'm not certain of it, but if he is, I shall never despair of the conversion of anyone again. If that guy was saved, there is not a person on the planet that I will think cannot be. And John Newton replied, I never have since God saved me. There's no one too lost. Don't despair. Jesus puts it this way in Mark 10, 27, with man it's impossible, yeah, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, until the gate of hell is shut upon a man, we must not cease to pray for him. And if we see him hugging the very doorposts of damnation, we must go to the mercy seat and beseech the arm of grace to pluck him from this dangerous position. Well, there is life, there is hope. And although the soul is almost smothered with despair, we must not despair for it, but rather arouse ourselves to awaken the almighty arm. Don't despair, even in the hardest of circumstances. How do we live when God's timing is different than others? Somehow I thought I could fit five of these in. It's not happening, obviously. Let me say too quickly. First, we recognize that there is grace in the waiting. Jesus is saying, my time has not yet come, but your time's always here. He goes on to say, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. And God's, God's timing is just different than our timing. And we recognize though, that there is grace in the waiting. Second Peter 3, 8, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord to the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know why Jesus is taking so long to return? It's his mercy, it's his grace. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Christ has not come back to give you glory yet, because there's more people who need to hear and know and receive the saving message of Jesus Christ. In fact, Matthew 24 says, and George Ladd calls this the most important verse today in God's word to God's people, this gospel of the kingdom, Jesus says, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. 
Again, do you know why Jesus has not returned? Because we as the church have not gone to the least reached yet. We have not yet gone to all nations, but when we do, Christ will return. He is patient in his return because he is awaiting us to deliver the message of the gospel to every ear that can hear it, to every life that can be changed by it. We recognize that there's grace in the waiting. Secondly, we discover that his timing is perfect. Jesus says, my time hasn't come yet. It's not my, it's not my, I can't go there publicly. I can't go there. My time's not come. But his time did come that following spring at Passover and Jesus did travel to Jerusalem for the feast. And he was arrested and he was tried and he was crucified. And your sins and mine were nailed on the cross at the appointed time that God had. Galatians 4, 4 says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons of God. Romans 5, 6 puts it this way, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It wasn't quite time for Jesus to go, but that following spring it was. And there he purchased you by his blood. Want to hear something amazing? Acts chapter one, after the resurrection of Jesus. Those breakfast sandwiches, by the way, should be sustaining you. So hold tight, okay? I'm taking a couple, two extra minutes. Even though Jesus' siblings didn't believe during his earthly ministry, after his resurrection, we read in Acts 1.14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In Acts chapter one, his brothers are devoting themselves to prayer. You know who one of his brothers is? James, the just, wrote the book of James, one of the most hard-hitting books of the Bible. Put your faith in action, people, he's saying. That's Jesus' brother. He's come to faith. He's become a pillar in the church. He even presided over the council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. Jesus' siblings did come to know who their brother was and that he truly was the son of God. See, God's timing is perfect. Trust it. God's ways are good. Trust it. And his grace is is sufficient. Please trust it. I'm going to invite us to have a time of response, and uh, that includes prayer. I'm going to invite our prayer team to just get in different places in the room, up on the top of the balcony, in the back of the room, the front of the room. I just want to give you opportunity. They linger intentionally after the service. They'd love to pray with you. If someone has been heavy-hearted um, on your heart this morning, just receive prayer with someone about that that you would both be a Christ-like example and also be able to articulate the gospel and that they would be saved. Just come pray that with someone. It's our joy to do that. Also, just encourage you, uh, we'll respond with a song, but I will let you know I've gone over time. Actually, Ernie Charlton put us over time. No, just kidding. <laughs> no. Um, so we've gone a little bit over. And uh, so if you need to pick up kids, you need to go, just feel free to, to, to slip out. But we are gonna respond with a song. Let me pray. God, thank you so much that the apostle Paul could stand there and say that you save sinners of whom he is the foremost chief of sinners. There is no one so far out of your grip, so far um, from salvation that it cannot be done. So Lord, I just pray that you would reinvigorate us again. 
to get on our knees in prayer, to truly pursue you in the way we carry ourselves, in the way we live, that we would live sacrificially unto others. And Lord, that you would put the message of the gospel on our lips as you give us opportunity to proclaim that you are greater than any treasure this world has to offer. We need you in this, Lord. Pray you would help us reach those that we love dearly with the good news of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.